Hey everybody, this is Taylor Petrie, the editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. In this episode of Dialogue Heritage, I'm going to be looking at the second generation of dialogue leaders and the second generation of the issues that come out. That's in the period from 1970 to 1975. This is still all before I was born, so it's been a good opportunity to go back and look at some of the original events that were going on and the things that helped to shape the journal's reputation in those early days, as well as some, as well as some of the great triumphs and conflicts and challenges that they faced. It's all a pretty interesting period and one that I think isn't super well known. There are two issues that really stand out during this time period that almost everybody who knows a little bit of something about Dialogue's history is aware of. That's the pink issue, the first issue edited by women, and the article from Lester Bush on the history of the church's teachings about race. I'm going to be looking at these issues, but also try to set a much bigger context for what's going on. Now, as we dive in a little bit deeper into Dialogue's history, I want to commend a specific set of articles that are uh, from the early 1990s, where Devery Anderson does a multi-part history of Dialogue. That's where you can get a really deep dive on this. We're just going to be discussing a few of the most important stories during this time period. Now, the original founders, Wes Anderson and Jean England, both uh, leave Stanford in the, uh, at the end of the 1960s and, and 1970s, uh, one to go on sabbatical and one to take a job. Um, Dialogue then moves to Los Angeles under the leadership of Bob Reese, who is then a professor of English at UCLA. The role of English professors in these early years can't be overestimated. They were committed to literature, poetry, and so on, and under Reese, a new genre of the personal essay forms in Dialogue. And Reese still continues today to be one of the great uh, essayists in the church. I definitely recommend his work. So uh, it's a time period where uh, they, they continue to, to press and think about Mormon literature, and they're supporting Mormon literature and writing about it a lot. Um, but there's also a, a, an interesting thing that happens under Reese's leadership. The finances are really struggling during this time period. After the initial enthusiasm for dialogue waned in those, uh, in, in those later years, they fell behind in schedule. Uh, they were really running out of money. They were renting offices. They had two editorial teams. Their costs were really high. Honestly, I'm surprised at how much more lean we are now compared to how they were back then. But computers, I think, make things a lot easier. Anyway, they needed lots of fundraising efforts to save it. And it really wasn't clear if Dialogue was going to survive another uh, five years, if it was going to make it a full decade. So there, was a lot of, there were a lot of problems during this time period, and Bob Reese poured himself into it to, to save it, really. Uh, unfortunately, Dialogue cost Bob Reese tenure at UCLA. He spent so much time on it that he wasn't able to fulfill all of his responsibilities in the English department at, at UCLA, and uh, they didn't value the work, and he, he unfortunately didn't get tenure as a result. He went on to have a great career doing a lot of other things, including staying at UCL, UCLA for a long time, but uh, it's worth noting that. There's another interesting thing that's happening during this time period in the Mormon intellectual world that I think is worth mentioning. There is really a proliferation of new institutions of intellectual endeavor that, that pop up during this time period. The John Whitmer Historical Association shows up here. Sunstone, of course. Exponent 2. The Association for Mormon Letters, 
all of these new organizations announced themselves in the pages of dialogue during the period of 1970 to 1975. Also, in 1972, Leonard Arrington is appointed as the church historian, the first academically trained historian to, to occupy that role. Arrington had been an important part of dialogue from the very beginning and had thrown his support behind it in the 1960s, making it the de facto official journal of the newly formed Mormon History Association. His deputies were uh, Davis Bitten and Jim Allen, uh, who also continued to uh, contribute to dialogue. This is called the Camelot years of church history with these three uh, gentlemen at the, at the helm. You also have other institutions that aren't mentioned in the, in the pages of dialogue, but that are popping up during this period as well, like the Association of Mormon Counselors and Psychologists, or AMCAP, which is also founded in 1975. So you might ask, why were all of these new organizations blooming up during this time period? Dialogue had preceded all of these other organizations, but really belonged to a big trend of what was happening in the church during this period. When uh, Dialogue's editor, later editor, Mary Bradford, asked Peggy Fletcher, now Peggy Fletcher Stack at the Salt Lake Tribune, why she decided to found Sunstone, um, she said that Dialogue was too stuffy, too academic, and too elitist. And that seemed to be the reputation that it had. And so Sunstone was founded as a little bit of a lighter, more pop culture alternative. Now, I want to talk about one of the most important issues that appears in dialogue during this time period, and that's what comes to be known as the pink issue, or sometimes the women's issue. Uh, in the summer of 1970, a women's group had started meeting in Boston. Um, Claudia Bushman, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, and a number of other sort of feminist icons in the church uh, uh, start to meet together during this time period in, in, in somebody's living room. And, uh, and during that summer, they also have an encounter in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, with the editor of Dialogue at the time, Jean England. And uh, Claudia Bushman remembers uh, saying that there should be a women's issue of Dialogue, and uh, a volunteer to take it on. And so, according to Bushman, England loved the idea and immediately agreed to go along with it. This issue really stands as, as a kind of uh, a classic uh, moment in Mormon feminism. Devery Anderson's article says that the pink issue was the first public sign that a feminist movement within modern Mormonism had been born. And of course, Joanna Brooks, Rachel Steenblick, and Hannah Wheelwright in their book Mormon Feminism point to the pink issue of dialogue, quote, as it would later be known, struck a warm, frank, and bold note to mark the beginning of a new era in Mormon women's history. So people were really excited about this. It was, uh, a, a, they had put a public call out and asked for people to submit papers to it, and uh, they started to get stuff rolling in there. And they charted out a relatively progressive policy of uh, what, what Claudia Bushman called the twin pillars of Mormonism and feminism to be held simultaneously. One of the things that I was really surprised at as I was going back and looking over this history is that it was not really super well received at the time. There were a lot of people that thought that it was both too radical and others that thought that it wasn't bold enough. So um, interestingly, uh, Laurel Ulrich looks back on it and says that some women didn't want to be associated with something that might make them seem critical of the church. Others thought we weren't being bold enough. I think we were trying hard to be ourselves. 
So a lot of the responses sort of assailed this middle ground, saying that either gave up too much or didn't go far enough. Uh, the real issues that many people thought were around priesthood or were around uh, uh, the structural differences between men and women. And it was kind of kind, trying to take a space in between. One of the responses that I found really amusing was from a single 25-year-old male in the letters to the editor in the following issue. It's really kind of a classic case of mansplaining, and it just cracks me up. It says, the penchant for autobiography in this issue led to a lack of systematic analysis on the problem of women in Mormonism in general. Uh, I was surprised to see that the author of that particular letter, a young Harvard student, was Richard Sherlock, who later became a famous uh, Mormon theologian and then also famously left the church for Catholicism. But he critiques Claudia Bushman for being way too pro-marriage and family in her feminism. And uh, so there was a kind of, you know, I don't know, I guess a little bit of a, a hesitation around all of the embrace of a pro-family values feminism that many of the Mormon feminists in this era were, were talking about. There's another interesting issue, uh, another interesting letter from the summer of 1972 issue that says, Gentlemen, I'll take the enzyme. As its quality goes up, dialogue goes down. The woman's issue followed the church line. Ho-hum. Really a kind of complaint that it was too, way too tepid, way too conservative. Another letter from that same issue says, Mr. Sherlock was not the only person who had great hopes for the issue on women and came away disappointed. At least it was a beginning. Raising children is a challenge. Mopping the floor is a bore. Talking about it or writing about it is a deadly bore. Please, just because we are women does not mean that we are interested in hearing more about housework or cooking or diapering. It's bad enough we have to do it. So... Anyway, just some funny kind of uh, uh, chiding of the Mormon women for not being bold enough during this time period. Interestingly, this shows up also in the letters to the editor between Bob Reese and Laurel Ulrich a couple of years later, and the, where Laurel had written to Bob uh, a letter to the editor that was published that said that uh, Dialogue was not publishing enough women authors, and she had gone through and counted up all of the number of women authors that there were, and, uh, uh, and said that there aren't enough and the dialogue needs to do more about it. Bob gives a measured but maybe a little impatient reply. He says that, uh, frankly, I am still somewhat disappointed that the issue was not bolder, that is the pink issue, was not bolder and more far-reaching in its attempts to speak to the serious problems of sexism within Mormonism. Your approach and tone may have been more practical and realistic, but personally, I would have liked a little more boldness. So he goes after her for not being feminist enough. That is, by the way, the same objection I, Bob Reese, have to the first issue of Exponent 2, which had launched that same year. It seems to be trying so hard not to offend that it comes off as pretty bland. Incidentally, I'll gladly compare Dialogue's gender statistics with those of Exponent 2, which doesn't have one male on its staff and doesn't have one male contributor to its first issue. I personally feel that the problem of women's rights in the church is one of the most significant problems facing Mormonism today. As editor of Dialogue, I have tried to give space to an open and intelligent discussion of this problem. 
He then asks Laurel Thatcher Ulrich to be the associate editor of Dialogue and commits in concrete ways to recruiting more women contributors. But you can see that there are some really interesting tensions going on between maybe people who wanted to be a little bit more radical and people who were a little bit more conservative in their takes. In fact, Claudia Bushman often remarks on how conservative she was and how conservative she finds herself responding to many of the people who tried to push them to be more radical during that time period. So Exponent 2 is launching, and it's a friendly but still a rivalrous uh, relationship in these early days. Of course, Exponent 2 and Dialogue have a long history together, and the spring 2020 issue is guest edited by our friends at Exponent 2. We're really excited for that continued cooperation that has lasted all these years. So anyway, there's another little controversy around women's issues during this time period that I thought was worth mentioning. And it just shows what a great star someone like Laurel Ulrich was during this period and how much controversy she was attracting. She wrote an essay that was published in the letters to the editor, I'm sorry, that was published in the personal essays section about why she didn't want the priesthood in the summer 1974 issue. In it, she says, if the priesthood were a profession, I'd feel differently. Precisely because it is blatantly and intransigently sexist. The priesthood gives me no pain. One need not be kind, wise, intelligent, published, or professionally committed to receive it, just over 12 years old and male. Thus, it presumes difference without superiority. I think of it as a secondary sex characteristic, like whiskers, something I can admire without struggling to attain. So anyway, this, uh, this one also attracted some attention. Uh, a letter in the following issue complaining about this essay says, I was shocked to read Laurel Thatchell Ulrich's short piece in the most recent issue of Dialogue. She states that the priesthood is blatantly and intransigently sexist and that therefore the priesthood gives her no pain. She says she feels no urge or struggle to, to struggle to attain it. But the entire tone of her note suggests that she is yearning to have the power which the priesthood represents and resents the fact that she cannot get it in spite of being perhaps better qualified in terms of spiritual gifts than many males who have it. While I do not question Sister Ulrich's spiritual gifts, she seems to have missed a point of fundamental, fundamental to the order of the kingdom. The male has the right by blood to preside over the female in righteous dominion. It is the female to uphold the male who presides in righteousness. The sooner Sister Ulrich and other sisters in the church come to accept this fundamental principle, the happier they will be. So you can see the dialogue was really getting really conservative voices and very liberal voices, and the feminists couldn't seem to please any of them. So uh, a fascinating period in this time. Now, I want to turn to perhaps the most important article that Dialogue has ever published, which comes out in the spring 1973 issue. But really, Dialogue had fallen so behind at this point that it wasn't out until September of that year. This issue publishes Lester Bush's article on Mormonism's Negro Doctrine and Historical Overview. Bush had sent a copy of this, uh, of this article before it was published to Boyd K. Packer, who discouraged him from publishing it until after he met with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And then other surrogates of the general authorities pressured Bob Reese, the editor at the time, not to publish it, and even threatened him, warning that it would put 
general authorities in danger. Reese later said that, I said that as editor, I was trying to make a sound decision, but that if it turned out that I was wrong, I hoped the brethren would forgive me. He, this surrogate who had contacted him, said they would not. Bob replies, if what you are saying is true, it disturbs me more than the denial of the priesthood to the blacks does. So it was pretty controversial to be publishing this article, and uh, uh, Dialogue was a little bit nervous about it, having asked general authorities permission and then denying or defying that authority when they asked them not to. So this article is interesting on it in its own right for really setting the historical background to how it is that many uh, Latter-day Saint leaders came to believe that the priesthood should be denied to anyone with African blood or African descent, and sets the thesis that this was a kind of accidental cultural historical doctrine that develops in pretty, with pretty strong evidence. Interestingly, Bob Reese was nervous about this and actually asked for three different responses to the article, two from uh, uh, prominent BYU professors and one from Gene England. One of those BYU professors was a name that pretty much everybody knows, a guy called Hugh Nibley, whose response really in retrospect is somewhat embarrassing. Here's what he says. Now the whole issue boils down to asking whether it is really God and not man who has ordered this thing. And so it gives me great pleasure to be in a position to answer the question with an unequivocal affirmative. It is indeed the Lord's doing. How do I know it? By revelation. So he really doubles down on this saying, you know, listen, we can demonstrate that this was, that this has this particular history that undercuts it, but he insists that it is the Lord's doing and that revelation has given it, to, given that question, given the knowledge of that question to him. Now, worse, what Nibley says is uh, a, a few things that don't really hold up so well today. Quote, if we really took the Lord's teachings seriously, we would be envious of the Negroes. So there's kind of this interesting moment where church members who are still trying to defend the policy in the mid-1970s are kind of falling back on some really pretty racist doctrines. However, for the most part, the article was received exceedingly well. Just a couple of letters from the following uh, uh, issues. Greatly pleased with the last issue, Lester Bush's article on blacks and the priesthood was by far the most enlightening piece I have read to date. Other people complained about Nibley. Dr. Nibley's response was perhaps the most disappointing, probably because I've always generally admired both his scholarship and his logical thinking. It was disappointing to find him ignoring the question where his scholarship could do us the most service the validity of the claim that the Negro people are descended from Ham, and presenting a rationale for current church policy that can only be characterized as strange. Other people liked Nibley's view. Hugh Nibley's response elevated the value of the issue considerably. Another, thank heavens for Brother Nibley. He's answered the critics of the church once again in his masterful response to Lester Bush. But, the issue was really growing during this time period, and we see that the, the issues around gender and race are both coming together in the 1970s in the church. One letter says, I see no difference between denying the priesthood to women and denying it to blacks. Both practices seem absurd today. 
So there's just this interesting moment where, uh, where the church is really conflicted over, over this issue. Of course, as is hopefully well known, Lester Bush's article is credited with being very influential on Spencer W. Kimball. Spencer W. Kimball in 1978 received the revelation that ends the practice of uh, restricting the priesthood and temple rights to black members of the church and uh, is, of course, uh, uh, you know, rightly praised for that. But reportedly from uh, Ed Kimball and other historians have shown that he had really read closely Lester Bush's article in Dialogue, which is why it's considered to be such an influential and important piece, not just for its historical value of, uh, in terms of laying out the case, but also for this particular influence that it had in bringing an end to the practice. So I want to turn to another interesting episode that's going on in Dialogue right now. It's one that was probably overlooked at different times as people have looked back on this history, but today really has come back to be much more relevant. And that's the Watergate scandal and the impeachment and resignation of President Nixon, which was going on during this time period. So, of course, there was uh, people, people know uh, the story and, and given, the current, the, given the contemporary crisis uh, of the Constitution that the United States is currently under, under uh, President Trump, the Watergate scandal, looking back on it, seemed pretty mild and pretty tame. But there was a whole issue that was dedicated to this in uh, 1974. And there's a great essay in it that I really want to commend to our readers, written by Gene England, where he talks about uh, what the meaning of all of this is, and is particularly concerned about the relatively high regard that many members of the church continued to hold President Nixon in after the scandal had been confirmed and he had resigned from office. Many people had complained that it really wasn't that serious, even if he was guilty, or that this was what every president and politician has done. And Gene England writes a really powerful rebuke of those, uh, of those statements. I just want to read a couple of them because they stood out to me, reading them in the, in the moment that we're in ourselves. This is the most insidious poison that Nixon has injected into our system, this ethical confusion and relativism. And it perplexes and worries me that many of us in the church seem to have been infected by it. In this lies Nixon's profoundest betrayal, leading to a moral swamp many sincere and honorable loyalists who, because of his moralistic pretensions, gave him their sacred trust. He says earlier, our republic has recently passed through one of its three or four most serious constitutional crises probably the severest in this century. Nearly 30 of, presidents, of the president's closest associates, including cabinet members, and finally even the president himself, have been found to have used the power of the presidency and the agencies it controls to wage illegal political warfare on their enemies and then to sidetrack the justice that should have pursued them. So reading this essay is both one that I think stands out for being relevant for our own time, but also one that I think I, I worry about for our contemporary community, just as Gene England did then as well. What is the hold that these corrupt individuals seem to have on so many of our fellow Latter-day Saints? Now, the politics the, of the time was a, was a contentious issue, and I want to call attention to another 
kind of funny and pretty striking uh, a set of uh, conversations that happened in the fall-winter 1971 issue, where there was a round table discussing Cleon Skousen's The Naked Capitalist, which had been published in 1970. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, it continues to be a popular book among Tea Party folks today and sort of the descendants of many of the John Birch Society, the, uh, the, the 1970s version of this, 1960s and 1970s version uh, of this. It's filled with conspiracy theories, some veiled anti-Jewish uh, statements and so on. But it makes the argument that there is a vast underground conspiracy of global capitalists, global wealthy American capitalists, who are at the center of an imminent communist plot to take over the United States. They are the super-rich international bankers, both Republicans and Democrats, and household names of the American aristocracy at the time. It's really a straight-up Looney Tunes conspiracy theory, but one that lives on today. Len Beck, for instance, has touted this on his program, and, and so on. So there were two reviewers from BYU who took opposite views on the book. One that praised Skousen for uncovering the global communist conspiracy, and the other by Lewis Midgley. Midgley is most famous today for being a prominent apologist and was associated with the Foundation for Ancient Research of Mormon Studies, or FARMS, and uh, its later iterations. And he uh, really goes after Skousen in this. In some ways, you see his strong voice both in this letter and the one that we see in his later apologetic writings as well, where he calls Skousen a phony. He lays out the similarities between Skousen's fascist ideas against the bankers and Nazis' teachings as well. And he calls Skousen a dupe and a propagator of a conspiracy cult. He goes after all of the religion professors at BYU as well who were teaching Skousen's book. This was a time when Midgley was really an enemy of senior church leaders like Ezra Taft Benson and, and later his son, who were all spying on the liberal professors at BYU, and Midgley was at the center of this for being such a strong anti-Bircher. But one of the fascinating things is that then Skousen is given page space to reply to all of these, and uh, where he tries to rebut some of the points that Midgley makes. Uh, Midgley then responds to the response, and he says, I saw the review as a call to repentance to Skousen, and laments the fact that Skousen did not take up the opportunity to repent. Uh, so it was all really a kind of topsy-turvy uh, exchange and one that is highly entertaining that I definitely recommend. Um, letters to the editor in the following issue responded to it in somewhat uh, humorous terms. Let me get this straight. Skousen's a populist. His followers are right-wing conservatives who are pursuing a radical left program. And Midgley, the liberal, is defending the capitalist rich guys. <laughs> it's a pretty funny... Uh, assessment of what were really some kind of screwed up politics during the time period. Now, a couple of the other issues that, uh, that I want to comment on before we conclude. One is that there is a science issue that comes out. Uh, this science issue is uh, controversial during the time period because, as you may or may not recall, Joseph Fielding Smith, who had been the president of the church for a brief period in the early 1970s, was a staunch opponent of evolution. He, and uh, opposition to evolution was a very popular idea in the church. Even today, interestingly, Latter-day Saints 
believe in evolution at the second lowest level of any religious group just above Jehovah's Witnesses and far below even evangelicals. Anyway, the most important article in this uh, particular issue is one by Dwayne Jeffrey, which tried to trace a history of LDS thought on evolution as Bush had done on race. And he really contextualizes the fundamentalist ideas that some Latter-day Saints had embraced during this time period. So the article prompted even a, an official rebuke about a year and a half later by Apostle Ezra Taft Benson, who was then president of the Quorum of the Twelve, who criticized in a BYU devotional humanistic emphasis on history. While not identifying Dwayne Jeffrey by name, he references the article, quote, Most recently, one of our church educators published what he purports to be a history of the church's stand on the question of organic evolution. His thesis challenges the integrity of a prophet of God. So Jeffries had shown that Joseph Fielding Smith published Man, His Origin and Destiny, a famous anti-evolutionary tract, uh, that, that uh, Joseph Fielding Smith had published this over the objections of some senior church leaders. Jeffries actually responds that he had soft-pedaled it and that he would retract if there was other information that contradicted his conclusions. And he says that I was informed that they knew that I had the data, but that President Benson had the pulpit. And if I did not wish to get denounced at pulpits all over the church to audiences which I had no possibility of reaching, it would be best just to remain silent. So once again, dialogue is stirring up controversy, this time on evolution. The last issue that I want to discuss is a letter to the editor in the summer 1972 issue, where a person writes about his friend Eve, probably a pseudonym, who is struggling to stay in the church. Quote, Eve is trying to find a way to stay within the Mormon church, which she perceives as racist, sexist, and therefore largely unchristian. And he asks advice from the readers of dialogue. How should someone respond to Eve's concern? The winter 1972 issue then has many responses to this, which I think are worth reading. And I call our attention to it because these issues are things that many members of the church are still struggling with today. This was in 1972. And I think that we often forget how much discontent there was with the conservative turn of the church during this time period. Here's one of the responses. The racism and sexism you see in the church are not a reflection of the gospel of Christ, but of his children's inability to live his gospel. And those children must be loved and taught. Another, it should be obvious to anyone who knows much about the Mormon church and has thought seriously about it, that the institutions of Mormonism will deeply disappoint anyone who believes in equality among races and sexes. So the pages of dialogue before there was the internet, before there was you know Facebook and all the all the other places where people can find opportunities to discuss these with like mind to discuss their concerns, to discuss their uh, the the challenges that they face with like-minded individuals. The pages of dialogue were the place where that could happen. And they provided an independent venue for members to work out their, uh, their questions and to seek community and to find answers. In conclusion, I, wanna, I want to uh, go back to Devery Anderson's article. He says something I think pretty astounding here 
in, in the early 1990s as he's looking over this history. I believe the judgment of history will be that at a critical juncture in the history of the church, when there was a swing to the right and toward a rather rigid conservative position, dialogue helped keep a balance. It was a forum for important, if alternative, voices. It strengthened the faith of many and increased the charity of not a few. It showed that the same dialogue that was in the beginning is essential for the mental, moral, social, and spiritual life of Christ's people. I hope that the judgment of history uh, does uh, hold that. I think it still is absolutely true today. The dialogue served a really crucial role in that uh, in, in the 1970s during this time period. It was a troubled one, but one that produced some of the most important issues that Dialogue ever published. So this episode is part of the broader Dialogue podcast network. We're a proud member of that as we founded it, uh, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts that promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, and culture. You can find out more about the network at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's all one word. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. You might be interested in the latest episodes of Mormon News Report. The Mormon News Report podcast covers the week in Mormon news with a healthy dose of snark and commentary. Join Brant and Jenny every Monday to get caught up on all the top stories you need to stay up to date on the top stories in Mormon news. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Dialogue.